0: Again, if you are a guest with us, uh, we're really glad to have you. Uh, You are catching us in the second week of a five-week sermon series that we've called Cross Community Cultivate. We're taking a few weeks to talk about and preach into some changes that we've made in the life of our church. We've wanted to express uh, a discipleship process that we as a church can engage in and take seriously so that we would be able to move deeper into the call Of discipleship that Christ has laid upon us. And part of our mission statement can be boiled down to those three words cross, community, and cultivate. And today we are looking at the cross as the first step of discipleship. And our mission statement says that we want to be a people that are transformed by the cross of Jesus. Now, that word transformed is really important. Because we are not called to be people that simply learn about the cross. We can regurgitate theology about the cross or facts about the cross. The cross is something far more than just something that we learn or simply receive. The cross transforms us because the cross not only saves us, it also shapes our lives. The cross is the very pattern that we base our lives. And it's in a cross shaped life that we find our calling to be disciples. Those are hard sayings that Jesus has for discipleship. But we want to take a hard look this week in particular at taking seriously the claims and the calling of Jesus as to what it really looks like to be a disciple. Because it's very easy for us to, find, to fall into a rhythm of pretending and a rhythm of kind of faking it. And Jesus will come to, come to this earth and he says very bluntly, If you want to follow after me, pick up your cross. And he'll even go further and he says, He who does not pick up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. That's hard language. He's saying, don't pretend to follow me if there's not a cross on your back. Don't pretend to be my disciple if there's not a cross on your shoulders that you're carrying. Because if we don't take that seriously, then we're just going to end up settling for the gospel as information and rather this power that transforms. If we don't take seriously the opportunity to pick up our cross, then we, either, then we just become spectators of which Jesus had many. People interested in his teaching. People interested in what he had to say, yet they didn't carry a cross. They weren't truly disciples. And how can we engage in this... Um, how can we engage in any serious level or any serious conversation about discipleship if we don't understand the cross? And how can we experience the transformation of the cross if we don't understand how it's meant to shape our lives? The reason we make the cross the first step of discipleship at Rockwell Pres is be, it's because Jesus makes it the very first step in following him. You want to follow me, there's a cross. Pick it up and follow me. But it's in that picking up of the cross that we experience transformation and that is Paul's hope for us in this passage his hope for us is that we would experience that we would understand the cross in such a way and then we would respond in such a way that we would experience the transforming power that Jesus offers to us in his cross now if there's anybody that has the right or privilege of any new testament author to talk about transformation it's Paul i mean think about what his transformation looked like he went from somebody who was a church killer to a church builder, someone who planted churches, someone who stoned Christians to someone who would suffer on their behalf, someone who, would, who said, that, I am a slave in chains for your good and for your benefit. He understands transformation very well. But as we move towards Paul's teaching this morning, we need to situate ourselves in what he means by transformation. So if I asked you this morning, what is an area in your life, what is something that you want to see transformed? If I gave you a moment to think about it, what is an area of your life that you want to see transformed? Now, for those of you that thought of something and have something in mind, let me follow it up with a second question. Did you think of, some, did you think of a circumstance in your life that you want transformed? Or did you think about you being transformed? Because those are two different things. Paul is not concerned whatsoever with your circumstances being changed. He's concerned with you being transformed. You being transformed in the renewal of your mind. Something in you being transformed. Why? Because it doesn't necessarily take a Christian to say, I want to transform a marriage. But it does take a Christian to say, I, Jesus, come and transform me. Change me. Change my heart. That's what Paul is talking about. Is he says, I don't, don't just say, Hey, I want to transform marriage. Who doesn't? But as we follow Jesus, he wants us to begin to say, Jesus, make me a cross-shaped wife. Make me a cross-shaped husband. Transform me. That's a little bit different flavor on it. We all want transformation, but do we want it on God's terms? That's the challenge of our discipleship, and it's one that Paul puts before us today. So as we look at verse 1, how does Paul tell us how this transformation happens? says, verse 1, therefore, all right, that's a good place to stop. We're going word by word today. We're going to be here till 5 o'clock, so get settled. No, it's a, good, it's a good place to stop because therefores are very important in the New Testament. Anytime you see a therefore in the New Testament, what they're always doing is they're pivoting. They're shaping, they're changing, they're moving in a new direction. So they will say all of this truth about the cross, all of this truth about Jesus and how... Um, an understanding of who Christ is and who we are as his people. And then they always say, therefore. And then they follow it up with how we should live in response to that truth. Learning and living go hand in hand in the scriptures. And the glue that slams those together are the therefores in the scriptures. And there's no bigger therefore in the you know, entire New Testament than this therefore in Romans 12.1. So if we think about where we're at, Paul has just spent 11 chapters. 11 chapters talking about the meaning, the value, the power, and the purpose of the cross of Jesus. 11 chapters talking about everything that happened in those three hours on the cross and those three days in the grave. He funnels all of history now through this lens of the cross. And it takes him 11 chapters to do all that. And the reason I stop at this, therefore, is because I think it should immediately give us pause after what's come before this. It should give us pause and we should recognize our disposition to oversimplify the cross. We often want to oversimplify it, and we take what Paul has it's taken him twelve or eleven chapters to describe, we often simplify it in a sentence or two. And so if I asked, you know, what does the cross mean to you? You know, how would you define the cross? I would imagine that in some, you know, kind of some composite answer would be that Jesus died for me. Paid for my sin, and now I have eternal life. Now, all of that is 100% true, and nothing I say after this is going to undermine that at all. That's truth that is powerful, and that's truth that is at the heart of the gospel. But is that all? Is that all the cross means? Is that we have just been given this gift of eternal life? That our debt has been paid for? Because if that's all we define the cross as, and we define it in kind of very simple terms, How is it that we connect it with other areas of our life? How do we answer deeper questions about how we're supposed to live? If Jesus died for me and paid the penalty for my sin, well, why not go do whatever you want to do? Why not continue to sin? Is it not all paid for? How does that truth about the gospel, what does it mean for what type of husband you should be or what type of wife you should be? What type of parents we're supposed to be for our children? we only think about the gospel in those simple ways, it's very difficult to connect the cross with every aspect of our lives. It's very difficult uh, to get, I mean, and here's the problem when we define the gospel so simply as something that we just kind of receive is that one, we can't answer the deeper questions about life, but when life gets really hard, we fall apart. When life actually presents its challenges and its difficulties and its circumstances don't go our way, we often become overwhelmed by our circumstances rather than understanding that we can be transformed through them by the power of the cross. But if we define it so simply that we can't connect it with real life and understand how we're supposed to live, then we just end up feeling spiritually adrift in an ocean. We believe in a small gospel. There's a great scene in the movie Jaws. Um, I've never seen it. I hate sharks. But I read about it because there's this famous scene in it that uh, is is pretty great. Up until this moment in the movie, Spielberg does an amazing job at building this tension. He never lets you see Jaws until the right moment. You know there's a problem. Something's going on and something's wrong, and they're trying to find and figure out what it is. And so Ridley, the main character, he goes... And he rents this small, uh, you know, fishing boat. It's just him with the captain. They go out onto the ocean. And they're out there, and Ridley goes to the back of the boat. And as he turns around in the back of the boat, he sees Jaws rise out of the water with its mouth open. And he sees how huge and how gargantuan this shark is. And it's utterly terrifying. And Jaws goes back down into the water. And Ridley just kind of bolts upright. And he slowly walks back to the, back, to the front of the boat. Shocked, he turns to the captain. And he says, "We're going to need a bigger boat." The truth is, is that there's eventually going to be a circumstance in your life that, if we define the gospel so simply, you're going to realize that you've defined the gospel so simply that it's too small and it's not big enough to handle the weight and reality of real life. And it's in those moments you realize I need a bigger gospel. How can two people who profess to be Christians have such a a broken marriage? How can someone who claims to be a follower of Christ be so joyless? How is it that we can have these claims of the gospel and yet we remain unmoved by them? And this is Paul's exhortation with this, therefore, is that you recognize that he's not calling us to a simple gospel. He's wanting us to understand the fullness of what has happened in the cross. And we have a gospel that's bigger than we could possibly imagine. And there's no single aspect or corner of your life that remains unaffected by it. So he continues to push us to the cross so that we might understand all of those ways that we can be transformed by the cross of Jesus. So in verse 1, he says, Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, for this is your spiritual worship. When he says living sacrifice there, and he says present your bodies, he's using the clearest possible language to say, to present everything you are in response to the mercies of God. Then at the end of that, it says your spiritual worship. A better translation of that is probably your reasonable worship. So in this verse, he's basically saying that if you understand the cross and the fullness of it, and if we rightly understand what the cross means, then we will automatically begin to move in a way that we are moved by the mercies of God, and we will present every aspect of our lives to him. Why? Because it's the most reasonable thing we can do in light of God's mercy to us. That if we truly understand the cross, then it stops becoming just this simple thing that we receive from Jesus. Does that make sense? It's not just that Jesus has given us this, but it's also that we respond by giving him everything we have. So in short, what Paul is saying is that if you really understand the cross and we're going to be disciples, then we recognize that when we, if, we op, if we really understand the cross, it's not just Jesus that dies for us, it's also we that die for him. We lay down our lives for him. There's nothing in our lives that we say mine, everything in our lives we say yours, The mantra of our lives becomes, Jesus, my master, what would you have me do? Jesus, my master, what would you require of me? How would you have me live in this circumstance? How would you have me live in that circumstance? What do you require of me? That we would be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which means that if we rightly understand the cross and we claim to be disciples, that means that the calling upon your life is to be a walking, talking, living, breathing crucifixion scene, that your life tells the story of the cross. Your life is the ultimate, the most reasonable thing we can do is to lay lay down our life in light of God's mercy towards us. And perhaps if our life is not shaped by the cross, then we have to really recognize that we are unmoved by the mercies of God towards us. We are unmotivated by them. And as we look at Paul's calling this morning, and we take that serious look at the cross, that we ultimately, if we respond correctly, we give him everything that we have, does that describe our lives? Does that describe the way that we endeavor to live, to move towards the cross that we might understand more of what it is and how it shapes us? Does the words living sacrifice describe how we endeavor to bring honor and glory to Jesus? Is there evidence that at the very fundamental core of your life, it is shaped by the cross? And this is where Paul will say the rubber meets the road. He will say that you don't have to look very far to understand if the, if the cross has shaped your life. It's in how you live. It's in the way that we live that it determines if we've truly learned or not. Does your bank statement read any differently than your non-Christian neighbor? Does your planner or your schedule read any differently? Does your uh, Internet search history read any differently than your non-Christian neighbor? Is your Amazon wish list longer than the people you pray for? Longer than the things that you are bringing to Jesus to ask Him to move on behalf of others? I mean, if transformation is at the heart of our discipleship, we have to ask ourselves a question Have we experienced any transformation in the last five, ten years? Are we still afraid of what others think of us? Are we still as greedy as we were ten years ago? Are we still afraid of the opinions of others? Have we learned to lay down more of our life? And if we can say, I don't really see the evidence of a cross-shaped life, perhaps it's because we are unmoved by the mercies of God towards us. And in the end, our life is not fundamentally shaped by the cross. And if it's not shaped by the cross, then it's shaped by something else. And this is where Paul gets into verse 2. Because he says, Yes, we are called to live as a living sacrifice, But you're not going to be able to do that unless you're aware of these two realities that are at work in you. That in every moment, there's these two ways of going about life. And he says it in verse 2. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed in the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So someone says, yes, I want to be a living sacrifice. I want to offer everything that I possibly can. I want to answer that call to come and die and offer everything that I have, am, and will be to Jesus Christ. But he says, great, if you want to do that, you have to be aware that there's two ways of navigating your life. You will either be conformed to the image of this world or you will be transformed by the cross and pick it up and follow after Jesus. And if we're not aware of that, then we're just going to be spectators and pretending to follow Jesus. So what does Paul mean when he says conformed? What does he mean as we have this tension play out between this opportunity? We have an opportunity to live uh, being conformed to this world or being transformed by testing. That the ultimate test of whether we have learned the cross is not in our ability, ability to pass a seminary exam. It's in how we live. It's through the test of life that we understand the will of God. And it's through, the, it's through how we live that this tension gets played out. And so it's in all the little moments of your life that we often don't think about. It's in our conversations. It's in our bank records. It's in the way that we approach our spouse. It's in the way that we approach our kids. It's in the way that we think when we're by ourselves. It's by testing in all those little moments and all those 10,000 little choices you make in a week that determines whether or not you have truly learned the cross and it shapes your life or if we are being conformed to the image of this world. It's in these moments where the rubber meets the road as to whether or not we truly understand the cross. So what does Paul mean if we just took a second and tried to understand what does he mean by being conformed to this world? Well, I mean, we could like talk all day about like sociology and philosophy and psychology, like all the conversations about what is it that motivates man? What is it that's at the core of what drives us and motivates us? But quite frankly, it'd be a waste of time because the business world understands very quickly what it is that motivates us. If you look at... I read an article recently. Uh, one of the best-kept um, best secrets in the entire world right now is Google's algorithm for how they process your searches online. It's one of the most coveted and sought-after uh, things in the world. There's only a few people that even know how it works. Only people really that understand how it works. Because it's so good at predicting your behavior. So, the reason it's the best kept secret is that, you know, you type something into Google, and then you're like two letters in, and then it just pops up. It's like, oh, that's what I want. Why? Because it knows how you think. It knows how you respond. The algorithm takes everything that you are, all the data that we offer to the world. It takes that data, and then it processes it into predictable behavior, because the world wants to get inside your head. Because then Google can turn around and sell that data to companies so that they can offer you what you want quicker. They can put exactly what you want. They can get inside your head to offer you what you want. Why? Because they are, they, are not, you know, they are not trying to figure out what it is that motivates us. They know that we want what we want. They know that we pursue what we want. They know that if they can put what we want in front of us, we will figure out ways to get it. We will sacrifice for it. We will, you know justify any purchase that we make. We live in a world that is desperately trying to get inside your head because it wants to offer you what you want. Why? Because they know ultimately that we are selfish and we're self-centered. It's no surprise. That's the reality of what Paul is talking to us today about. Is that we can live in such a way where we decide what's best for us. We justify our behavior. We justify what we want, and we figure out ways to get it, and we sacrifice for it. He says you have to be aware of this, that that is how the world operates, that you are not a good arbiter of truth for your life, and yet we often live that way. We decide what's best for us. We we become the arbiter of truth for what's good for us and what's acceptable for us. And so you ultimately get, if that's true, then that goes directly against verse 1, which says, be a living sacrifice and offer what is acceptable to God. But Paul says you won't be able to do that until you recognize that there's something in you that only wants to offer God what's acceptable to you. You only want to engage the scriptures in a way and then decide what's best for you. You want to be the arbiter of truth. And if we just stepped back and looked at the surrounding culture, you hear this all the time as well. You hear that, you know, um, it's kind of my new favorite phrase where the world will say, hey, find your truth, whatever that means. That's what it says. It says, Find your truth. Do what seems best to you. Find out who you are and live by that. Don't care about what anybody else thinks. Find your truth. Do what you want. Why? Because what you decide for yourself is best. You are the arbiter of truth. And Paul knows we do, and we cannot culture for doing that, and we should. We should call that out. But quite frankly, we do that all the time in the church. All the time we decide exactly how it is that we will apply the calling and commands and teachings of Jesus. So on the one hand, we say, yes, Jesus, I follow you and I'm your disciple, but we go and we turn and we do another thing. Why? Because we decide what's best for us. And we either can, in all these little moments, all these little opportunities to either come and die, we have this opportunity to offer what is acceptable to God or offer what is acceptable to us. You have Jesus who says, Confess your sins so that you might be healed. Confess your sins. But as soon as we have an opportunity to do that, we don't. We'd rather protect our image and protect ourselves from what we want, how we want others to perceive us rather than humble ourselves and be honest and transparent. In that moment, are we offering what is acceptable to us or what is acceptable to God? Jesus says that everything that corrupts you comes out of your heart. If you want to know what's wrong, pay attention to the heart. And we say, yes, I follow Jesus. I am a disciple of Jesus. But yet, anytime we have an opportunity to actually engage the heart and understand how we feel and how we respond to the world and what flows out of our heart, we run. We go the other way, and we'd rather read something else than engage our own hearts with the gospel. Where, you know, the scriptures say, um, you know, Jesus says, yes, that we're supposed to live in such a way that uh, wives, respect your husbands. And we say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but yet we go and we're critical. We have a a sharpness and we're unencouraging. Are we offering what's acceptable to God or what's acceptable to us? Or husbands, Jesus says, "Love love your wives the way I have loved the church and laid my life down for her. And yet we go and we treat our spouse like a business partner or an employee. And then we complain about not necessarily feeling respected. Are we offering what's acceptable to God or what's acceptable to us? Children, we're supposed to raise them up in the gentle discipline of the Lord and not provoke them to anger, and we say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but then we're always blowing up because we have such a short fuse and we're so easily irritated and inconvenienced. Are we offering what is acceptable to God or what's acceptable to us? Missions. Jesus says, go into all the world, near and far. It's not a command or or it's not a suggestion, it's a command, and yet I hear all the time, I don't feel called to India. Well, then I have to say, well, then what what portion of the Great Commission do we feel called to? I have to ask myself that question all the time. I can spend all my time talking about India and putting my investment there, and yet my neighbor goes completely unengaged by me with the very words of life that we possess. Am I following Jesus and offering what's acceptable to him or doing what's right to me, offering what's acceptable to me? Jesus says, forgive one another as I have forgiven you. And yet, we'd rather hold on to our grudges. We'd rather have power to punish someone. We'd rather actually give someone the cold shoulder or the silent treatment than seek peace and harmony. Jesus says, love one another the way that I have loved you. Step into community so that you might consider others more important than yourself. And yet, when we go into community, we often pull away because maybe others don't value us the way that we want to be valued. In that moment, are we offering Jesus what's acceptable to him or what's acceptable to us? The problem is, is that Paul wants us to take a serious look and say, if we're going to say that we follow Jesus and we are disciples, we can't come to all these moments that we have an opportunity to die and we leave our cross propped up in the corner. Because if we do the same thing the disciples do. That they could go and they could talk about the, the teachings of Jesus. They spent three years with him. They walked, they talked with him. They went out and did ministry in his name. They performed all these signs and wonders. And yet, when the opportunity came to follow Jesus to the cross, they ran. As soon as the cross is introduced, they run. And we do the same thing all the time. That as soon as we have an opportunity to come and die, as soon as the cross is introduced, we run. And so, how can we experience transformation as disciples? When we're constantly running from the very cross we're called to carry. Are we really seeking to offer God what's acceptable to Him or simply what's acceptable to us? The truth is, Paul would say, that there's one or the other. Either we are endeavoring and seeking and striving to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, or we are just simply a leftover sacrifice, offering God what seems good to us. And Paul would say, that's a tragedy, because you're missing out on the transformation that comes from knowing and embracing the cross. And this is why if we take a serious look at the teachings of Jesus and we say, I claim to be his disciples, you find out really quickly that if you want to engage and embrace his teaching in order to do it, you find out very quickly that something in you has to die to do it. It is very hard. Something in you has to die to go and apologize to your spouse instead of learning to say, well, I'll apologize to them as soon as they apologize to me. There's something fundamentally different about Jesus' teaching that as we move out into the world as disciples, the only way that we can truly engage that is when we recognize that we have to die. That's why we pick up the cross. Because it's in all those little moments that we have the opportunity to come and die. And it sounds really hard, and it is hard. And Paul would say the purpose that we do that, why? He says it in verse 2, so that we would know the will of God. Now, part of you is like, that does not sound like a fun play, a payoff. Come and die so that you'll know the will of God. wish there was a little bit more than that. wish there was a million dollars that came with learning to come and die. Well, let me ask you this. If it feels like a small thing to be able to get inside the mind and head of God. Imagine I came to you and I actually had the power to do this. Let's just pretend for a second. I came to you and I said... Would you want to know and get inside of Warren Buffett's head? You could know everything that he knows. You would know about money and the stocks and the and the markets the same way he does so that you would know exactly what to do as he would do it. You would literally get inside of his head. Imagine how transformative that would be. I would take you'd be crazy not to. We wouldn't be in this church anymore. We wouldn't have cat problems anymore in this church. Life would be utterly transforming. That would be fantastic to get inside his head and to be able to do what he does. Now, let me put a caveat on that. If I could really do that, and I said, yeah, but in order for you to have that, you have to sell everything that you have right now. Would you still do it? Again, you'd be crazy not to. Why? Well, it'd be hard for a little bit, sure. You get a few paychecks. You're able to buy back everything that you had in short order because you know what to do with money in a way that's completely different. And you know how to live in a way that's completely different. You know how to seize the opportunities that are available to you. And so then in a year, yeah, it might be difficult, but then in a year you're chuckling to yourself on your yacht. How utterly transformative it would it be to get inside Warren Buffett's head and know what he knows? My question to you is, why, why is it a small thing to be able to get inside the mind of God? Why is it a small thing that that is offered to us? To know what he knows, to love what he loves, and to live as he would want us to. It's one of those things that you can only experience on his terms, which means that we have to die to get there. In all of these moments, we have an opportunity as disciples to come and to be transformed and to completely and utterly have the way that we think about life shaped and changed by the cross. Then, when we learn to live a cross shaped life, all of a sudden you find yourself in a different position because you 're not worried about the insecurities you have all the time you 're not always tossed to and fro by the waves of circumstances of life, and there 's a new life that begins to creep up in you that is entirely and utterly different because it 's not a life that comes from anything in this world and then on top of that, Jesus says that for the joy set but well Hebrew says it for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, and last week he said. I want to share that exact same joy with you. Joy is not something that can be taken or stolen. Do we have any idea of the profoundness of what it is that we have been given in the cross? Do we have any idea of the power to transform and to shape and to heal? Jesus comes to you and he says, I have an opportunity for you that you can get inside the very mind of God. You can know what he knows, love what he loves. You can begin to find joy and life that you never had available to you before. I can get you inside his mind, and it will be utterly transformative. I have the power to do this, to give this to you. But in order to experience that kind of life, you have to pick up your cross and die. Let's pray. Jesus, we gather before you as your people we are often so reluctant to pick up our cross and follow you because we would rather live life on our terms than on yours. Help us to imagine life apart from all of our sin and our shame and our guilt, our insecurity and our anxieties that weigh us down. Help us to let go of the things of this world that we seek to numb us, that we seek to cope, that we seek to try and deal with all the things that only you can deal with. Help us to find in the cross of Jesus. Help us to find life in our death. We ask that you would make us a church that constantly comes back to the cross so that we might understand its beauty and its magnificent to transform and to heal and renew. Help us to be people that don't just want our circumstances changed, but we ultimately come to you and say, Change, transform me. Change my heart. What area of my life have I not given over to you? Help me to truly come after you, to pick up my cross, and be a walking, talking crucifixion, as you call me to be. I ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we all pray. And everybody said,